Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to our podcast. Today, our guest is Jonathan Sparks, the founder of Sparks Law. Uh, Jonathan has been a guest with us before, and we welcome him back. Thank you. Oh, hey, thanks for having me, Gary. Really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Uh, yeah, today we get to talk about, I guess, the history of corporate law, which is, um, you know, my favorite topic. <laughs> Great. So, you know, speaking then, you know, last time you told us, you know, some of, you know, why you decided to get into law and, and, and so forth. Why was it that you really decided that, that business law was really what you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, so I just, I just had a, a passion for it, you know. Um, I, I don't know if it's because I was raised in this entrepreneurial environment. My, uh, my dad started a company in 1988. Um, he, he was a doctor and he found a, a need for, you know, training for the boards uh, because, you know, doctors would typically take a year or two off of work just to spend the entire year studying for their board uh, reviews. So he came up with this company that would help train them and nobody was doing it at this point. So it was, you know, everything was written from scratch on an old you know, IBM and, uh, you know, we had the letter, that was back when we had the, the yellow, uh, colored everything and DOS, you know, right. soft windows wasn't even out yet. Um, but yeah, you know, we were licking stamps, you know, when I was, you know, uh, a first grader or something <laughs> for mail outs, you know, the, the old school, uh, marketing campaigns, but, um, you know, growing up in that environment, um, you know, I saw, unfortunately, a lot of uh, legal struggles that they had. And, you know, when I went to law school, I was just really, you know, asking a lot of questions about it. I loved corporate law classes, um, all of that. And, uh, and I realized that there was so many legal fixes that um, my family could have done had they had good legal advice. But, you know, they didn't at the time understand that you could hire, you know, a business attorney to help. And, uh, um, you know, they unfortunately got into some trouble. Um, they could have easily been a dispute for their businesses and things like that. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I realized that there's a real lack of good expert legal advice. Um, I'd say there's a lack of, of good expert, uh, tax advice as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I can help with the, with the legal side of things and, and that's why, um, you know, do what you love, right? Do what you enjoy. Right. Endless amount of energy if it's something that you care about. Right. So, you know, going back, you, you're you talking about your parents and saying that there's, you know, different uh, things that they could have done if, if they would have had the right advice and stuff. So talk to us about, um, you know, the different types of entities that someone uh, can get structured as. Uh, sure. So, um, so this, we're just going to kind of go back in time a little bit, I think, um, so that, you know, our listeners can really understand how limited liability was developed as a legal technology and, and why it's so important okay. and why these things are, are important to, to have in place uh, to maintain it. So, 
Um, back in the 1800s, uh, we did not have limited liability. Um, limited liability allows you to invest into a company or multiple companies. And then if that company, you know, goes south, if something really, you know, goes wrong with the company and your investment, you can just leave that company and sort of, you know, have a sunk cost for whatever your investment is, but you're not liable personally for anything that the company, you know, did wrong. So if, you know, back in the day you would have factories, you know, with the industrial revolution, you got a lot of investors investing in factories or railroads and things. And if something went wrong, if the factory blew up, you know, God forbid, and, you know, everybody would, would want to sue the, the owners of that company for, you know, tens of millions of dollars even back then. But you could walk away from that investment because, you know, um, the company just went south. And that's kind of a, an amoral example. <laughs> but, right. but what limited liability does is it allows you to invest um, without, you know, concern for your personal assets. So your, your house, your inheritance, your, you know, your trust, your estate, you know, anything like that, your cars, um, savings, certainly. So limited liability is a huge deal. And when they first came out with it, they only offered it with a very uh, uh, highly scrutinized set of corporate laws. So the only way you could set up limited liability is with a corporation. And you needed all these bells and whistles. And most of these laws are still on the books, this sort of red tape stuff. So this is where you hear about a set of bylaws. This is where you hear about a shareholder agreement, which is basically a partnership agreement. You have voting trusts sometimes. You have different classes of shares. You have printed shares sometimes, which I think we talked about last time. Um, you know, you have to do, to set up a corporation, you have to do organizational meeting minutes that are recorded by the corporate secretary, you know, which may or may not be the one single owner. It might be, you know, someone else on the board of directors. You also need a board of directors. <laughs> so, you know, and this is just kind of touching the surface of all of the, you know, the, the things that you need in order to set up a corporation successfully. If you don't do any one of these things, people get to what's called pierce the corporate veil. So they, they make the argument in front of the judge. Uh, this is, let's say somebody, let's say you have a rental property that's, a, that's held by a corporation, okay? And you're renting this out to, um, you know, Sally and Bobby, who are your tenants, okay? So Sally and Bobby have, you know, their grandmother come over and uh, she's a high net worth individual and she slips on the, the uh, you know, the, the patio for your house and, uh, you know, you didn't tell them about some, you know, slippery thing when it gets icy and she dies, you know, unfortunately. Her estate can sue your company and they will try to sue your, you personally, okay? If you have a well-maintained corporation with all of these things in place, they cannot pierce the corporate veil and come after your personal assets. They can only come after what's in the, the business bank account. She can get the value of the real estate property, but that's it. So if the lawsuit is for, you know, for example, you know, $5 million um, and the, the real estate is only worth, say, 
uh, you know, 250,000 or 300,000, then all that she can get is, is that value. Does that all make sense? Yep. Okay. So is, you know, so you, you talk about that with, with in this, that, that we're doing long as you maintain the, the, the corporation properly. What right. is it that we need to do? So, you know, taking a, a corporation, for instance, what do we need to file to get started as a corporation? And then what do we need to do with the corporation to stay, to, to stay in, in good standing, I guess? Yeah, right. So the whole goal is limited liability. Mm -hmm. So if you have everything that a corporation requires to maintain, which is more than the other types of entities, which we'll get into in a minute, then you will benefit from limited liability and that, you know, grandmother that died on, on the, the patio will only be able to sue for the value of that company and your personal savings, car, house, everything else in your estate is protected, is limited from that liability, okay? okay. So what they did in the 80s typically was, um, I mean, they had some other alternatives in the 70s, but mainly this didn't start until the 80s. They started coming up with simpler versions of limited liability companies or types of companies, okay? Because up until then, the only type of company that had limited liability was a corporation. And corporations, of course, as you know, suffer from uh, double taxation, okay? And they have all of these legal things that are just, you know, a pain <laughs> to put together because you need, like you asked, you know, you need bylaws, you need organizational meeting minutes, you need a shareholder contract, you might need a voting trust, you might need multiple classes of shares, you need a stock ledger. I mean, I could go on, right? So it really takes a team of lawyers to put all of this together often. Um, and it's just expensive, you know? So when they made it in the 1800s, they didn't want to give limited liability to just anyone. They wanted only people who, you know, had a professional attorney, were super savvy and, and could just do it all. Um, and for better or for worse, that, you know, kept out, that was sort of a gatekeeping mechanism that, you know, did not allow a lot of people to get limited liability. They just couldn't afford it, right? Right. So in the 70s and 80s, we started to streamline this process with alternative types of entities. And this is where we started to come up with uh, limited partnerships or limited liability partnerships or limited liability limited partnerships, LLLPs. Uh, we had professional corporations, which were a little different, so PCs, um, and a lot of different versions of this until we basically figured out, you know, the, the science to it and we streamlined it really well and we came up with the LLC structure, which stands for limited liability company. Limited liability companies have all the greatest stuff from a legal and tax perspective and, you know, the most, the lowest cost, most efficient, you know, stuff too. So um, you don't need bylaws, you don't need a ledger, you don't need all of these things that you need with a corporation to have an LLC and maintain your limited liability. But you do need one thing, which is called an operating agreement. And that's it. It's basically a partnership agreement. You do need it if it's just a single member owner, if it's just one person that owns. But as long as you have that, you're good. Um, unfortunately, though, nowadays, people don't even have that. Right. <laughs> which is a shame because it, it's not expensive 
it's not a big deal. It's a pretty easy thing, you know, for lawyers to put together. But if you don't have it, then you still don't get limited liability, even if you have an LLC company, then they, they are liable to pierce the corporate bail. So in, in that um, articles of, uh, you know, you, you file your articles of organization to get started, and then you're saying you need this operating agreement. What does the operating agreement, in a nutshell, what does it say? So it's less important what it actually says and more important what it does. Um, okay. And so if you're, if you're just a single owner that just says, you know, I'm an individual, taxed as an individual, and over here is the separate legal entity, which is a legal fiction, right? The separate legal entity that doesn't have a human, is not a human being. <laughs> but there's a wall of separation between me and my company. So if something goes wrong with my company, or if I want to sell my company to somebody else, then, you know, there's a, a wall of separation. So I'm, I'm, I coexist and I'm separate and independent from the company. It used to be that if you have, you know, a solo uh, practitionership or a sole, uh, sole proprietorship, you are personally liable for everything that your company does. You are, you are the company. It's all right. your reputation. So if somebody sues you and you're, a, you know, an entrepreneurial type and you own interest in a bunch of other companies, if you do something wrong or, you know, something that, you know, gives rise to a lawsuit, even if it's not wrong, if you lose that lawsuit, they can go after all of the companies that you own, mm. right? Because you own them. Right. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're liable for all of that. So it's a scary situation. So the, the operating agreement sets up the wall, legally speaking. So, so what you just said kind of triggers something. So if I own, you know, whatever, five different businesses hmm. and you and I are in business together, and some other entity type thing, something goes wrong with one of my sole owned businesses and I don't have an operating agreement. Are you saying that they can possibly come after the business you and I own together because I'm the owner? Yes, so the laws on the books, uh, and we get this through British common law, which we sort of took over, um, you know, when we seceded. <laughs> Right. Uh, but also our state laws, we have what's called general partnerships. And general partnerships are the scariest thing in the universe because anything that your partner does in any way in involving commerce or business or even you know moral turpitude, you are jointly and severally liable for the decisions of your business partner. So if your business partner is unbeknownst to you, you know, a, a gambling addict and, you know, he goes out and he, you know, drops like the, the ownership to something that you own and, you know, he's liable for a million dollars. You're liable for a million dollars because you are a general partner with him. And it used to be that, you know, you had all these, these restrictions on, you know, people did not want to enter into a partnership ever because, you really got to trust this guy. <laughs> right, right. But now, uh, obviously, we have a lot of business partnerships that don't have that kind of risk, you know, but the way that you limit that risk is by having separate legal entities that you own a portion of that is not treated as a general partnership. Instead, it's treated as a, as a partnership with a limited liability company or a corporation or whatever else. 
But yes, I mean, if we if we decided to you know start a business and we did not set up a corporation or an LLC, anything that I do in any of my businesses, you're liable for, and vice versa. So another thing that you touched on, um, you know, if I'm a uh, a sole owner of a business, you know, as an LLC, you know, I'm reporting. If, if I don't do anything else, I'm reporting everything on a Schedule C, which obviously, yes, I have the liability protection, but it doesn't give me the tax the tax benefits that I want or that I think I'm going to get. So how can I, um, you know, help myself by changing? You know, what what do I need to do to be able to to change it so I'm, you know, I get the tax benefits that I want. So, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, because this is really, I mean, you're, you're more the expert on this than me by far. Um, but as far as I understand it, um, originally with a, with a C corporation, uh, you, get, you suffer from double taxation. So right. that means that the corporation, you know, let's say the corporation makes a hundred bucks, it gets taxed at, you know, whatever that rate is. So maybe 20%. So you're left with like 80 bucks, right? And then they're taxed again a second time on that distribution at right. whatever tax bracket they're in. So, you know, maybe you're left with 50 or $60, you know, or less. Whereas if it was only taxed once, um, then you would have, you know, you would net like 70 or $80 instead of just 50 or 60. Right. So with LLCs, they allow for what's called pass-through taxation, where it's only taxed a, a single time. Is that, that's all correct, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're correct. If you're a C corporation, you end up paying paying tax on whatever the profits are. And then when you take your dividend from the from the company, you're paying tax on it again. Um, and then with the, the, a single member LLC, you know, you're, you're a disregarded entity, you're treated treated like your sole proprietor so you pay off the self-employment tax right you know what i i guess where i was going more is you know uh, lots of times with our clients when they come in they they've structured themselves as an llc but that's not what they what they truly want um and because they want to take a paycheck which as an llc you're you know and you're the owner you're not allowed to take a paycheck right. so lots of times we for tax purposes we convert them with the IRS or petition the IRS to treat them as an escort for tax purposes, which then allows them to take a paycheck and so forth. What is it from a, from a legal standpoint, what is it that we need to do uh, from the LLC? Because if I, you know, petition the IRS to treat as an escort and they grant it, now do I need to go out and do bylaws? Do I need to get a new federal ID number? What do I need to do from that side of it? I see what you're saying. Okay, so that's a great question, and it's it's really important. Um, there are a lot of professionals out there, lawyers and CPAs, um, that don't totally understand this, and, and that's a shame because it creates more uncertainty for a business owner. Mm -hmm. We all know that business owners have plenty of uncertainty already, right? Right. Uh, so yes, so it actually doesn't make any legal difference. Um, there's not anything new that you need to file or do if you convert your company's taxation from a sole proprietorship or whatever it is, uh, even a Schedule C, to a sub-S corporate tax structure. So the IRS 
doesn't really care how you want to be taxed for your company and yourself. Um, you know, you could, I believe, have a sole proprietorship that's taxed as a C corp, although that would be kind of ridiculous. Right. Um, but yes, I mean, my my LLC. I'll just disclose this, uh, you know, information. But my LLC is taxed as an S corp. Um, I don't have anything in my uh, corporate documents or binder that have anything to do with a corporation because it's not a corporation. It's an LLC. It's just between me and the IRS, they're going to treat me exactly like a corporation with a subchapter S designation. So, so with that, then when people are filling out paperwork, loan agreements or whatever, they're still saying that they're an LLC. And yeah. their operating agreement is what is still dictating what they what they have to do, correct? Yes, correct. So the, the operating agreement is basically the new streamlined version of what we used to call your corporate binder. So it has completely replaced the bylaws, shareholder meeting minutes, you know, annual meeting minutes, all of that stuff, all of that red tape with okay. one agreement that you just sign and, and yeah, you can put it in a, in a desk and, you know, not really do much with it, you know, unless you get sued. Um, but you don't need to change anything in that. Um, you do need, need to file your annual report with uh, the secretary of state's office in the state that your business resides. And we can, we can talk a little bit about that if you'd like, but, um, but yeah, you don't need all of that other corporate stuff. You know, many times I have, um, you know, clients come to me and, you know, they, they um, want to start investing in real estate. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, my, my, you know, next door neighbor told me I should set up a corporation and put my LLC or put my uh, prop, you know, put this property in a corporation. Right. So is a corporation the right entity to put that in? Is it an LLC that's a right entity? Do I, do I need to do it? What's, you know, from, from a legal standpoint, what do you uh, think is the best thing from that? Okay. So um, we've got all of these uh, things. We've got the legal standpoint, which is mainly limited liability. Then we have the, the cost benefit analysis. And then you've got taxes too, which is kind of cost benefit, but it, 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 all of this. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, to further complicate things, every state's laws are, are slightly different. So right. it, it depends on where you're at too. But for the most part, you absolutely should get some kind of a limited liability company for any real estate investments because of that scenario we just spoke about, which is actually quite common. Right. Uh, personal injury law is a big deal. That's why you see so many billboards with lawyers, you know, that, that are like called, you know, the strong arm or whatever. Name it. Right. Um, you know, I, I love traveling because, you know, we just get to make fun of all the, the lawyer billboards. <laughs> why do they do that? Right. They do that because it's very profitable and it's very profitable because a lot of people don't set up limited liability companies or the like for their real estate investments and, and among other things. Um, okay, so yes, I would definitely recommend an, an LLC or a corporation from a limited liability standpoint, so that if somebody gets injured and on your real estate, you just lose the amount, the value of that, you know, individual real estate, you don't lose all of your other investments. And, you know, the bank gets first priority 
on the value of that real estate too. So if your equity in the real estate is say, you know, 70 grand, then the maximum that you could possibly lose from that investment is 70 grand. You can't yeah. possibly lose anymore as long as you hired a good lawyer to set up your LLC and, and manage all of that, like us. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, just getting it in there. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, so from a tax benefit, a, a tax and, and cost benefit analysis standpoint, you could set up a corporation. I think mostly they're uh, sort of confusing, you know, S-corp designations, which is only between us and the IRS, right. like we talked about, with an actual corporation. Between, but between LLCs and corporations, it's always cheaper to set up an LLC. Uh, the only times that I'm recommending a traditional corporation is if they're considering taking like a tech company, you know, public. So, so releasing it on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or whatever it is. In that case, yeah, there's a bunch of special things we need to do. But, you know, 99.99% of the time, these small business owners only need an LLC. It's also very common that I'm asked, you know, if they should set up a separate LLC for every... Uh, property or if they should sort of bundle some properties. My rule of thumb is just, uh, you know, once you get over a hundred thousand in equity that you own in various properties, I would park it in a new LLC because I don't want to lose more than a hundred thousand worth of equity should something go wrong. Okay. The risk to this is if you, let's say you have five properties that each has, you know, just 20,000 in equity in it and the banks own the rest of the equity on a, on a mortgage loan, then, you know, if something goes wrong with one of these properties, they could sue to get your equity in the other four properties as well as the first. So, you know, they could then get 100000 worth of value, you know, and, it, and it's up to you. If you really want to protect your limited liability, if your threshold is more, you know, 50000 total or even 20000 that's up to you. Um, but as a rule of thumb, I like the, the 100,000 equity where I put it into multiple buckets. So if I have 200,000 in equity, I would have two LLCs that own, you know, maybe 10 properties that each has 20,000 in it, if all of that makes sense. Yeah. So now this is going to be, be a silly question, um, but I've seen it many times. Sure. Um, I own a rental property. Awesome. And I've now heard, oh, I need to set up an LLC for it. I go set up the LLC. Am I done? No. So, <laughs> but you know, a, a lot of people get that advice. And uh -huh. you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's the advice is, is, you know, has good intentions. Then, you know, even if it's just you that owns it, there's a very good chance that you won't be able to limit your liability should something happen. So if you have that $5 million personal injury case, or if you get sued by your tenants, you know, for, uh, I don't know, mold issues or, asbestos or like something right. that you didn't intend you don't want to be personally liable for that to where you need to file bankruptcy to you know recover right you don't want to owe somebody five million dollars for something that you didn't know about and didn't expect and you had good faith intentions the whole way and you know just a, a six seven hundred dollar you know legal document can preserve can can sort of insure for you that you won't have to pay, you know, all of those, those losses um, is a, is a, a big, a, a great way to go. But at this point, if, if I, I own this property personally, right. And I've owned it say for five years. 
Right. And now I, again, I've heard, okay, I, I should be setting up an LLC. Do I need to then get the, get the, um, the property retitled into the name of the LLC, or am I able to keep it in my personal name and say, Hey, I'm operating as an LLC now. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, this is great. <laughs> so my advice on that is to, you, you have one of two options. Okay. One option is to park that the equity that you own in that um, real estate into your LLC. And this does, this limits your liability to whatever your equity is in that property because the LLC owns the property um, and not you. Okay. So to do this, you would, you would file with an attorney. It's gotta be an attorney because there's so much special things that you need to do. And if you mess it up, it could be very bad. Right. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't do this yourself. Don't try this at home, kids. Uh, but no, you file a quick claim deed with the records and deeds office. It's just like uh, when you have a closing attorney, if this is deed related. So you, okay. you have to make a deed filing with the records and deeds office. You need to usually have some kind of communication with your mortgage lending bank because sometimes they will flag it and they'll get you know ticked off at you. Um, with and it'll mess up your mortgage so you know that's that's something that you need to talk with a lawyer about but option one is to quit claim your ownership to the llc which you also own that way it's not your it's not you owning it personally and it gives them less arguments to sue you personally for something okay. that's wrong with the land another option i think a better option especially if you have multiple companies uh, i'm sorry multiple real estate uh, land that you're renting out is to do is to separate it. So you would put one, you know, property into one LLC, and then you would have an additional LLC that you may or may not own uh, with partners uh, that is for property management only. How this works is the property management company is the one that contractually obligates itself and only itself. And, you know, whatever the value of the property management company is, it might just be 5,000 that's sitting in the bank, you know, that might be the total value. So the property management company will give the lease to your tenants, for example, and then your tenants, if they have some beef with anybody about the land, they can only sue the property management company. They can't even sue the LLC that owns the land because that's an innocent sort of party, right? Right. And then you have a contract between the land owning LLC where you've parked the, the quick claim deed, the land in and the property management LLC. Okay. And then the tenants, so you have three companies, th three, three entities, the tenants, property management company, and the LLC that owns the land. Um, so it makes it really hard for the tenants to get past the limited liability created for the property management company and sue for even the value of the land. If you have, you know, three or more properties, um, I, I highly recommend a, a property manager. Okay, so so just to, to recap, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that to set up the, the this additional um, LLC that's, a, that's the property management company, and then with any tenants that I would have, the lease agreement is between the tenant and this uh, property management company, correct? Yes, correct. Okay, and then the and then the property management company has a contract with the 
landowner LLC for, you know, whatever the fees and rent and so forth are going to be. So yes, we are creating a, an, an additional layer of protection there. Absolutely. And in that way, it, it eliminates the tenant from being able to come after me directly. It has to get through the property management company because that's who they're who the lease is with. Yes. So if I were, it it would be so hard, you know, near impossible to get to the actual individual involved. You know, the, the who owns the property management company, who owns the real estate holding company you know, and, and, and does all this work, but that individual is so hard. You have to pierce so many corporate veils that, you know, those, those billboard personal injury attorneys that you see, they're not going to do it <laughs> because right. they know it's going to be, you know, a very thorny, uh, you know, bunch of, you know, bushes or I sure. can't make a good sure. metaphor, but it, it's going to be hard. It's going to be an uphill battle. So let me ask, ask this in, in another way also. So if, I own the property and my uh, mortgage company bank is saying, yeah, we're not going to allow you to put this property into an LLC, you know, because we want this, you know, th this agreement is between, uh, you know, you and us, not, not an LLC. If I then go set up that, that management company and all of the tenants for my property now are contractually obligated with the property management company and do that, does that still protect me? Yeah, it, 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 it does. It would be best if you could park the, the, the deed, the title to the land in a separate LLC, sure. but, um, but yeah, you still get a lot of protection. And in my experience, usually banks don't really care because they have the principal interest in it, in the property. So, you know, if, if something goes wrong, they can always foreclose on the loan and they're not going to have to fight anybody else. You know, they 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 won't get your equity in it, or right. you, know, you might you might uh, lose in a lawsuit and give your equity to somebody else. But the bank still gets the land, you know. So they're, right. they're going right. to get paid first, and they 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 have a, a principal interest in it. But yes, that would that would be far better than nothing, even if you have an issue with the bank, which in my experience is quite rare. That's I mean that's. That's awesome news because I just, I, you know, know so many times that I, you know, run into people that have the rental properties were reporting on their, on their schedule E because they don't have any type of entity structure or anything else. So, you know, this is great news uh, for people to really help be able to protect their assets. Yeah. Let me jump in here with some other uh, advice. If, if sure. you'll allow me. Um, so as a business lawyer, we've, we've represented a lot of different uh, partnerships in disputes about real estate. So in the world of real estate, there's kind of a lot of transactions that go on and they can tend to be pretty high value, you know? Um, so for example, you might get a case where there's uh, a, a general contractor or, or even a subcontractor that says, hey, let's get into the business of flipping houses together Mm -hmm. um, you're going to be the money guy and I'm going to be the, the contractor. So I'm going to fix it up and, you know, hire my guys to, you know, do new drywall and flooring and, you know, plumbing and whatever else. And then you're going to like invest in the company and we'll split the profits of the flip, you know, 50, 50, right. whatever the deal is. 
all of which sounds great, but you know, those are, there are so many elements to that partnership agreement that if you don't put it in writing, everybody's just going to, you know, once there's money coming in and money to be made, I mean, I have seen so much money go to the lawyers to like figure out who gets what percentage of, of the money that they make, that it's just, it's astounding to me. So the lawyers are the only ones that win, right? <laughs> Unless you get this correctly set up before you start doing it. Okay. So in that scenario, you need, um, you need a way for the money guy <laughs> to sort of, you know, pull the purse strings or, or stop the purse strings or, or take over ownership of the if the, the contractor sweat equity guy doesn't do his job and vice versa. If the sweat equity guy isn't, you know, isn't getting the money he needs, he has to have for materials, you know, much less to pay some subs or whatever to, to get the work done. He needs a way to take more equity in the company. So if he's going to invest that himself, right. Right. Um, and you know, they need a, a, a partnership agreement that spells out when they can put it on the market, you know, who's going to be the, the real estate agent, um, or if it's going to be them, you know, if they're going to pay out those real estate agent, you know, seller's fees or, or whatever, because mm -hmm. that's 6%, you know, across both of them. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, what their minimum sale price is and, you know, when they want to sell it and, and all of these things, if you don't have that locked down tight, then, you know, it can just be a total chaos thing and, and chaos is great for employing lawyers <laughs> but it's not great for the people who are making these investments so if you have any partner in any of these real estate developments that you're doing please 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 get a lawyer to help write a partnership agreement because it's it's worth its weight in, in you know printer ink <laughs> right. most valuable thing in the world um, uh, per, per ounce. And it's not a tough thing when, when there's not money running around, when you haven't made the investment yet, it's pretty easy to do. People are very reasonable, but when you start to get a bunch of, you know, disincentives and incentives in there, people do, uh, you know, pervasive things. Right. So this goes back just like our, our, our prior conversation that we had about making sure that you do the proper planning and lay things out ahead of time. Um, you know, just again, doing your, your operating agreement, um, you know, partnership agreement, bylaws, whatever it is to do, make sure you have those ahead of time before you actually start doing business. Um, because if you don't, it's going to hurt you down the road. Um, and if you are in business right now and you haven't done this stuff, you need to stop and call Jonathan and get this stuff done so you don't end up having trouble down the road because it's going to crop up sooner or later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing that we were talking about um, is uh, with general partnerships, you know, if you don't have a partnership and a limited liability company or a corporation or something else, the default version is a general partnership. And that means that you're totally liable for anything that your partner does in any business or, you know, active right. commerce or whatever. So if, for example, you want to go into business with a general contractor and this guy, which is common, you know, stiffs some other homeowner, you know, and they take their 50% down payment and they just run away with it and they owe this homeowner, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. 
you are liable for that $100,000 unless you have an entity that says otherwise, because the right. default thing is, hey, you're, you're general partners. So they can come after you, you know, just like we did in the 1700s, you know, <laughs> it's, it's super important to get that to handle. Right, right. Man, you really gave us a, a lot of really good information today. Um, I think that this, I, I think that anybody that is listening to this, that if you are thinking about setting up a business or you have one set up and you don't have, you know, your partnership agreement or operating agreement or bylaws, you need to stop and get them done now. Um, Jonathan, how can our listeners get a hold of you uh, if, if they're finding themselves in this situation right now? Yeah, we're happy to help. Uh, you can email me directly at, at jsparks, S-P-A-R-K-S, at sparkslawpractice.com, or you can call us anytime at 470-268-5234. Uh, our website is just sparkslawpractice.com, but, um, you know, happy to help. We can help you out in, in whatever state you're in, uh, unless you're, you know, filing a lawsuit at the time, which hopefully you're not. We really appreciate your time today and uh, look forward to uh, talking with you again shortly. All right. Thanks so much, Gary. Pleasure. Thanks. To this show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.